Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about his takeaways from the IMB conference that just wrapped in New Orleans. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back. I slept in my own bed last night, which was wonderful. We're here. <laughs> that is always a plus. So that is the topic of our conversations. Basically, you just spent you know several days at the MBA's IMB conference in New Orleans. And so give us a feel for, you know, first of all, what was the overall vibe? Yeah, so I think it stands in stark contrast to that of the kind of regular annual conference that they did in, I want to say November, was it November? It might, might've been October in Philadelphia. And I mean, that was funeral-like, was it not? I mean, it was very, very dour, a lot of very negative feelings in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Um, I, I don't think that was the mood at all in New Orleans. Now, partly New Orleans is I think a pretty fun city and people are really happy to go down to New Orleans and see some jazz and eat some gumbo and, and drink and drink and drink and drink. And, and certainly a lot of the people who attended the conference did a lot of drinking. Um, that said, yeah, I, I would describe it as cautiously optimistic or very optimistic. Part of that might be self-selection, right? In general, I find that the people who run IMBs and are at the executive level or at least divisional regional manager and up, they tend to be optimists, you know, and that's because it's a cyclical business. They have been in bad cycles. They've been in good cycles. I think they tend to have more of a 10,000 foot view than a lot of people in the industry. You know, the people who attend IMB for the most part, They've been doing this for a while. It's a lot of veterans. It's a lot of the same people who are catching up with old friends who joined a different lender or who started up a consulting business or some sort of uh, you know vendor or whatever. But they're buddies, right? Like it's it's a lot of the same people that get together, and you hear a lot of the same words repeated. I, I was joking uh, with a buddy that you could have a very very difficult drinking game just by the amount of times you hear the word rate rates, you know, it's like uh, you, you'd be, you'd be in the hospital getting charcoal down your, your gullet by, <laughs> by hour two. Um, but there's a lot of discussion on mortgage rates. There are a lot of folks who are also talking a little bit more about Basel three, some of the banking regulations that are being negotiated right now. There's a lot of talk about, let's say the fed doesn't, do what we're more or less expecting them to do and start cutting in the spring. What are our projections? Are you modeling for 20% declines from what you had initially projected? Are you building out different scenarios? And, and more than just building out a scenario, anybody can build out a scenario. Do you have an action plan if that does happen, right? And, and so, you know, I, I think this is generally a group, there's a little bit more camaraderie than I see in some other segments of the overall housing space or even the mortgage business, um, but definitely optimistic. And most people I talked to said, even 
January to date has been much more fruitful for business than the whole quarter was last year in terms of refi volume, right? And, and nobody thinks that refi is going to return to the glory days, um, but certainly a lot more than what we've seen over the last what, 18 months or so, right? So that's encouraging. I think a lot of folks have gotten a lot more serious about cost cutting and knowing where they need to be and that there's no shame in going from a $5 billion a year shop to a $1.5 billion a year shop. You know, it's uh, it's the kind of thing where if the market supports that size of a business, that's where you're going to be and things will get better in 2025, maybe 2026, whatever it is. Uh, but you have to adapt to the market. You have to be flexible. You have to be opportunistic, but plan for the worst and hope for the best is is really kind of the prevailing notion that I heard a lot of at the conference. It's amazing to me how how quickly things can turn. So we saw that in 2022, where we went from a really exuberant market to just, you know, put on the brakes and it was just so rough with, you know, the way that interest rates went up so fast. Um, and then I think there has been, I mean, we, we feel it all over from October when they had their annual conference to now, just a difference with everyone after, you know, after it was announced at the Fed was going to be cutting rates in 2024. Um, now we still have a lot to, you know, we have yet to see that and, you know, rates are back up closer to seven now, but I think the overall, you know, outlook is so much more positive. I mean, Fannie Mae's outlook, um, we just wrote a story about that. Rosie, uh, they, they see uh, rates even going below six in 2024. That that would change the game com considerably. Yeah. If, if it were to happen, right. <laughs> you know, and these are only projections and, and if, we were to, to be betting on the projections coming true every time we, we'd all be bankrupt, right? So, you know, you, you want to take it with a grain of salt and you want to evaluate uh, where the market is now. And I don't think anyone can realistically project um, all the way out to the end of the year. And, and it's courageous for them to do that. Um, you know, sometimes it, it doesn't always look great when, when it doesn't work out. Um, but for the most part, yeah, I think people are largely planning on, hey, let's say... Six and a half to seven is where we end up. We'll have a better year probably, but it won't be a great year. And so, you know, there are a lot of different scenarios and no one can plan for every single one of them, you know, at a hundred percent, right? You have to have contingencies, but you can't put all of your eggs in one basket. And so you have conversations like, how do we restructure our sales force all the way down to, we laid off so many 20-year veterans in underwriting, and if we have to ramp back up, can we bring those people back in to the industry? A lot of them are probably just gone now, right? Because who can look for a job for a year and a half without taking something? Would you even want to go back if you've had such a difficult uh, you know, time since leaving the industry? There are a lot of bad feelings there. And then, you know, there were some more systemic, I think, issues that were discussed. We had a lot of panels about what to do before the CFPB examiners come, um, that compliance is really about data. And it's not about creating a spreadsheet and just making sure that, you know, people say the right thing. It's about knowing how to track where you are and making sure that you are not inadvertently um, committing violations on, on redlining matters or that you're, you're not discriminating. Again, I don't, I don't think anyone is setting out to do it, but it does happen. It absolutely does happen. Um, and so 
you have a lot of people now who I think are starting to look at fundamentals. There are a lot of questions about LO Comp and my reporting partner, Flavia Ferland-Nunez and I reported out in December what we call the bucket game, right? Which is, you know, essentially... LOs are taking lower comp by lying about the source of the lead and the lenders are either ostensibly supporting it or endorsing it and running it as a business model unto themselves. And, and we heard that the CFPB, there was a representative of the agency there and he acknowledged um, that this is something that is happening and they are looking into it just because you don't hear about enforcement actions doesn't mean that they're they're looking into it. And, um, you know, but that's it. We don't expect to see any major changes to the LO comp rule. We don't see any big shifts there. But I think when you look at the numbers, it's at least worth the conversation. And um, Garth Graham, he, he does a lot of M&A work at Stratmore Group, really, really smart guy. And he looks at the numbers. And so when he was in LO back in the day, I don't know exactly what day it was, but, but you know, some time ago, he says, I got paid 50 bips as an LO way back then. And if you look at how much we paid the average LO in 2010, and let's say you indexed it to inflation, we'd be paying them 2000 to $2,200 less than what we do now. And the reason is quite simple. It's because we're indexing to property values, right? We're not indexing to another sensible measure. We are just looking at, okay, you know, you're getting paid... X amount of basis points on a home that has grown 30% in value over the years, right? And so we look at, hey, why is it so expensive to originate a loan? Why do we have an affordability problem? If we're honest about it, that's a big part of the reason we are paying a lot of loan officers a lot of money. Now, to me, that says there should be a bigger conversation about the comp issue in general. And so if you have LOs who are looking at the math and saying, well, if I take 50 basis points instead of 125 or, you know, in some cases more, maybe maybe that's actually good policy, right? And, and just because the letter of the law doesn't support that doesn't mean that there's, you know, that, that it should be painted black, that, that there's a problem with doing so, right? There are all kinds of laws out there that, that maybe were, were from a zealous advocate at one point in time or were, you know, not, not intended to be what they end up being. Um, so I, I think it's a conversation worth having. It was definitely it did come up quite a bit because the IMBs are are the ones who are really dealing with this sort of thing. And um, you know, it's it's still a tough business for them. That the margins remain very small. They've gotten a little bit healthier. We still see a lot of consolidation. I mean, even if you look at the loan officers themselves, we're down to about about eighty thousand loan officers, and that's just based on the presumption that they're doing one loan a month, right? That's hardly a career. <laughs> um, that's, that's, it's tough to sustain if you're doing one deal a month, right? And so you have a lot of LOs that are still there and still not doing anything. And that's way down from the high of what, probably about 140,000, 150,000. So that does mean that there is going to be some M&A and it hasn't quite hit as hard as I, I think a lot of the, the folks who specialize in this were expecting, but rates came down sooner than anyone anticipated. And so from what I heard from, from people who work in this space is definitely some owners who are on the fence are now thinking, 
we could probably stick it out. We can probably make this work. We can just get by. Uh, but obviously they're going to need contingencies and they're still having some conversations. So it's, it's still a tough space. Still a lot of fundamentals that aren't, aren't solved yet. Um, but it's an optimistic crowd by nature. It is. So, you know, uh, speaking about the LO comp practice. So yesterday we had a webinar, uh, Flavia and I did with Troy Garris, who's the co-managing partner at Garris Horn, who was one of of the uh, sources for that story that you guys did. And wow, you know, so we, we held that for our HW plus subscribers and he outlined what could be the penalty for, for these sorts of practices. And it is stunning. So it's pretty sobering to hear that, you know, I mean, cause what we've said is that we know that the CFPB is interested. What he said is like, you know, they've asked for, you know, it's obvious they're asking around about things, but um, he outlined what the penalties could be and they're significant, obviously. So, um, you know, and you have a three-year look back. So that's even worse. Uh, Always with, with, you know, mortgage compliance, you have to think about, it's not just today. It's what happened in the past and who's going to come in and and be interested and look in a look back. And and that's already happening. And there's a huge difference between the CFPB acknowledging that there is something happening and being interested and taking out their billy club and hitting somebody overhead with it and saying, no, 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 no. We don't do this as an industry anymore that's that's the shot fired over the bow, right? We haven't seen anything like that yet. I know of a couple companies who have gone through audits with the CFPB and were told you need to change some of the practices, some of the policies as it relates to the yellow comp rule, but nobody's been you know taken to the stocks, right? And so it does mean it, it is a widespread practice. I chatted with a lot of people at the conference and some of them were like, man, I'm so glad you didn't call me when, when you were reporting out the story, <laughs> because yeah, we do it. Everybody does it, right? It's, it's just, everybody's looking for an edge. Everyone's looking to try to, to try to get some business out there. And if this is a way to do it, they, a lot of them view it as a victimless, maybe crime, even calling it a crime, I think would be too dramatic a term. Um, but so yeah, it's look, it's, it's clear that the CFPB is aware of this. It's clear that they're looking into it on some level. If that's enough to translate into behavioral changes, I don't know, you know, and maybe the CFPB just by getting up there and for the first time acknowledging the issue publicly and saying that there is something that they're considering doing is enough to change some of the practices. Um, But who's to say that there are so many things in every industry, if regulators really wanted to look into something, um, they'd probably find something worth, worth, you know, penalizing actors for. That's not how the world works. It's not how our economy works, not how our governance work. So something to think about though. It is something to think about. Um, so I know that you uh, met with dozens of people while you were there. You're you're sort of famous at these um, conferences or anytime we have a, a meetup or whatever is like you just book yourself in 15 minute increments. Like you try to meet and talk to as many people in the industry as you possibly can. So were there any surprises there when you were talking to people? There were, there, there were a lot of surprises. What surprised me was how many of, these are mostly mid-sized lenders, mostly executives or, you know, fairly high up They're They're in um, strategic roles. Um, how many of them are thinking about expanding and getting bigger and wondering how do we prioritize growing the right way? 
And a lot of it is when it's a recruiting game, right? You have to get the right LOs. You have to build out a sales strategy. You have to be able to execute. Um, but also, do you get an underwriter who's been out of the game for a couple years and try to convince them to return to mortgage? Do you deploy precious resources and something else? Do you now do servicing, right? So many of these IMBs have been selling servicing and just to keep the lights on. And a lot of them are talking about, should we retain servicing? Yeah, we probably should, right? It's a good hedge, you know, and, and it also protects to some degree, um, you know, from, from having a loan get spun out to Rocket or Mr. Cooper or Freedom or some of the big aggregators that are really kind of purpose-built to do this sort of work. And they're thinking about how to build out a servicing arm now. Some would argue it's too late. <laughs> you know, that, that loan is... You, the industry average right now for IMBs retaining servicing is about 20 to 30%. And so that means more than two thirds, three fourths of the customers that you have in the database, when they do refinance their loan, are not going to go to you. And there are some pretty sophisticated, smaller, mid-sized actors that perform much better than the average. But we're talking about an average. There are a ton of them that barely do any refi business, even if it's in their own portfolio, right? And they should have the advantage. They should have a mechanism to get that loan into the pipeline and they just don't. And so that does mean that, you know, the, the Rockets and Freedoms and Mr. Coopers and Penny Macs and Lakeviews of the world are at a real advantage when we do get a little bit more refi biz. I, I don't think refi is going to come back strong this year even probably next year, um, but it's big business. And, and look, even if you're, let's look at the other side of it. Let's say you look at your own portfolio and you say 70%, let's just throw a round number out there. 70% is our pull-through rate. When we get an application to what we're funding, if we can get 10% better, like one, let's figure out why we're, we're losing out on 30% of the loans. What happened in that process? Did we get beat on price later in the loan cycle when the LO got chopped as, as we call it, or did something hit with appraisal or was there a snag with title or, you know, there, there are so many reasons something might not work out. Maybe in underwriting, they can't verify an income source or the address doesn't look right. You know, again, there are a million things, but if you as an IMB get even 10% better and that pull-through rate goes from 70% to 80%, suddenly you're profitable, right? <laughs> and that makes a world of difference. That, that allows you need cash to survive in this industry right now. You need liquidity. And if you don't have it because you're operationally not functioning at as high a level as you should, it's, it's really going to be hard to survive if the business doesn't improve dramatically for everybody, right? So if conditions remain and you're still not very efficient, you know, it's it's just not yeah. going to be a good 2024 for you. So I heard a lot about that. I heard a lot of people talking about how they expect much more movement among LOs in 2024 and 2025, which is something that I've been hearing pretty consistently for the last couple of weeks. I've been doing some reporting on it and, and really just looking at 
why did we see such little movement in 2023 among top producers? Well, the first part of that is, in general, the top producers don't move as much. I'm talking the 100 million plus club. They just don't move that much because they have a good thing going, right? They have all the support. They have a business that is functioning, that is repeatable. They're they're obviously treated well enough at their company. Um, and then the second part of that is just you don't see the signing bonuses in the seven-figure range anymore, right? And so the top producers just don't leave very often. There were only five in 2023 who are self-sourced loan officers who joined a new company, and four of those five joined cross-country mortgage. And you look down in the lower tranches, not lower, these are all top producers, right? I'm talking the 75 million to 99.9 million range, and it's similar. There were six or seven. I, I have to check the math. But again, same deal, right? They have a good thing going. And then you look at the 25 to 50, and there's a lot of movement there. And then the 15 to 25, even more movement. And so that's really where you start to see sort of the the upper middle producers that are doing solid business, but they didn't leave as frequently in 2023 as they did in prior years. But the contracts they signed, in most cases, 2020, 2021, they have an extension, right? They have, they're going to be locked in for a couple of years. A lot of those contracts are due this year and next year. And if the market does improve, as many of the folks at IMB predicted, they'll have more liquidity where they can recruit. And look, this business has always been fundamentally a recruiting game. It's a sales business. You need good salespeople. You need people who can self-source, right? Or you're so far ahead on AI and other other lead gen tools that you have a different model and you know, but that's that's for the most part not really that that's a conversation we'll have maybe Sarah in five years, right? You know, and there's a lot of talk about AI. There's a lot of talk about how to use AI as a tool for certain customer interactions, for cleaning up your own database, for being more efficient with your own time, you know, looking through all of your emails and telling you which ones are a priority when you get back, back from vacation. It's it's stuff like that. It's It's not the sexy stuff. It's not sort of the fantasy that people have when they think about AI and they think about, oh, what was that movie with Tom Cruise? Uh, Minority Report with, you know, the the precogs that can predict the crimes, the future crimes that are going to happen and they stop it in the moment, right? It's it's not nearly as sci-fi. It's it's actually fairly fairly boring, Uh, but boring is good, right? Boring creates efficiencies and um, you're definitely seeing it a lot more in some of the kind of the the ancillary counterparty spaces. So they're going to be doing some really crazy stuff with AI in the appraisal valuation space. They're going to be doing more of it in title eventually. Uh, I still think they're, they're a little bit behind on that. Um, but there, there were some really interesting conversations about integrating AI as a part, you know, of your toolkit. And I know a lot of top LOs who already do it. And have developed sort of the underlying systems where you have a prompt and it just reliably always hits that prompt and there's not much risk there. But if you're not good at developing a good prompt, you know, there's not much use in the tool, right? So it's um, it's, it's definitely a space that everybody's really excited about. And, um, and, and I think we're just going to hear more about it 
at every conference we go to over the next couple of years. I also think that, um, again, sometimes um, you could have a, an individual, uh, maybe at a very small shop, uh, even a mom and pop shop, who is up on their AI. But it, it's one of those things that I wonder if it's much more prevalent, you know, when you have an, an entire team of people, when it's a bigger company and, and someone's there to like, they're either, you know, from a company perspective, they're like, hey, this is how you can use it to basically have a virtual assistant, or this is how you can use it in, in uh, you know, um, in prospecting versus, you know, you're just there, at, you're, you're at a mom and pop shop on your own. Do you even have time to dig into like, how do I do this and make it something that really, um, you know, adds to my day. And I think it's just always that the smaller shops can be disadvantaged in that way, just in the, in the sense of like, they don't see someone else doing it. Someone from on high hasn't already invested the, the time to say, Hey, this is how you do it. And, but maybe that's why they go to IMB and others is, is to really figure out what's going on. Right. Yeah. And to that point, I, I think sort of a, a related angle here is just the idea of social media and being able to you to leverage the strength of those network effects and actually do business with it. We're not just talking the kind of rote, like, Oh, I, I put a post up on Instagram and I, I told people that, that I'm really good and, and uh, I'm a mentor and I'm here to be their lifelong, you know, mortgage partner or whatever. It's, it's, that's not how you do it. It's about being consistent. It's about having an authentic voice. It's about showing up where people are. It's not about, going up there and telling them what the rates are that day. And, you know, it's not a rate sheet um, image platform. It's, it's different. It's talking to people. It's being useful. It's making connections with realtors. And, um, you know, there, there were some really smart people up there, Greg Scher, who runs a division at NFM. It's, it's basically like an influencer or social media division. They do real, legit, no joke business from TikTok and other social mediums getting people from wherever across the country who see the content and say, oh, that's a really good plan for saving up to buy a house. Or I didn't know that about the USDA program, for example, and I live in a rural area in Nebraska and, you know, I, I could leverage this into to getting a home, right? And, and they don't know anybody. They don't know a loan officer. They might not even know a real estate agent, right? And so in that respect, they start with Greg and his team, right? And that's a really, really, really smart approach, but not everybody can do it. You have to have the discipline. You have to come up with something each day. It doesn't have to be masterstroke every day, but you do have to build um, the expectation and it's work. It's not, you know, it's, it's work in a different form. Um, and then Ali Cardi was there and, and she gave a really excellent presentation on how to connect with Gen Z. And she's done a couple uh, stories with us and um, you know, we have to talk to people where they are and in the language that they speak. And I think, and this is true in so many businesses, it's not easy or comfortable to change how you communicate with others, how you present the value that you might have, whether it's as a journalist, right? Or as someone who's trying to sell a house or try to sell the financing of said house. Um, but increasingly we are, we are seeing people who, they don't talk by cell phone. Like half of my reporting now is done by text message. You know, I, I text probably 40, 50 people that my, my bill would be insane if not for my family plan. Thanks mom. Um, but this is the way people like to communicate now. They don't want as much as they like hearing my, my smooth, beautiful voice and getting updates from my 
you know, about my kid and my, my cat. Um, they want to communicate via text, right? They want to see people breaking something down on LinkedIn. They, they don't want the old way of, of kind of one-way communication, right? It's supposed to be interactive. And if you don't really make a meaningful attempt at understanding them and solving a problem for them, I think you get left behind. And, and I think that was, for me, one of the biggest takeaways in this whole conference. And it was a really great panel. Um, I missed a, a couple minutes of it for, for some meetings, unfortunately. Uh, but it was really clear to me watching that thinking, man, so many of us in general are just so far behind, not even just mortgage or housing. I mean, <laughs> I'm even reflecting on my own, you know, social media usage and I, I don't even use anything but LinkedIn now. Right. And, um, and it's just, it's hard to get going, but if you do, the rewards can be immense because it's not everybody has the discipline, you know? Right. It's that, it's that mode, right? I mean, if, if it's hard to do, then if you can figure out how to do it and do it well, you're going to be in, in better shape. Well, James, I really appreciate you giving us kind of like your takeaways. And I'd be remiss if I didn't remind our audience, we have our own event called The Gathering. It's in April and it is a combined event for um, real estate, mortgage, title, appraisal. And we take insights from all of the ones that we go to and kind of bring it here. In fact, some of those uh, speakers that you mentioned will be speaking um, on those topics and and others um, at the gathering. So would encourage everyone to sign up. I know we're getting close to uh, filling up the, the room block for the hotel, which is at a, a lovely place. So, but thank you for going. Thank you for meeting dozens of people and um, giving us uh, the insight that you got from uh, spending time in New Orleans, even though I know it's not a, it wasn't a hardship. You loved it, I think. Yeah. And my, my childhood best friend lives out there and, uh, you know, get to hang out with, with a friend and, and his family. And, and so that was, that was always a nice perk. So happy, happy to go to New Orleans whenever, whenever we, uh, <laughs> we have a need for the reporting. Good to know. Well, thank you so much. And we will talk to you again soon. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.